This is episode 494 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. There's uncertainty all around, and we as the church are in the beginning of a life of persecution that was promised by our Lord. Often uncertainty leads to fear, and fear crushes faith. But we're instructed in Psalm 56 not to fear, but to turn our fears into faith. David says, whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. And then in that same psalm, he affirms twice, what can flesh do to me? And again, what can man do to me? That's a great question. And the answer is, well, not much other than kill us. But if we have a proper view of eternity, even death becomes an anticipation and not something to fear. It's called living by faith, and it takes concrete action on our part to do, which is exactly what we're going to talk about today. So join with us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. We uh, talked last week about uh, the coming persecution that's uh, coming to America and uh, to Christians, and I can't, you have to see it or you've had, your, uh, you've, been, you've had your head in the sand. It keeps growing with intensity every day, and it's, uh, you know, the Christians have faced persecutions in other countries in the past. Christians are facing persecution now in other countries. Why in the world do we think we're exempt? And so if you remember from last week, I basically laid out some truths, some uncomfortable truths, but some things that we looked at in Scripture that we find are, are, are so true that um, persecution is an integral part of Christianity. We think it's just grace and mercy and love and your best life now, but if you will look at the teachings of Jesus, and we did kind of a... a, a a flyover of those last week, every time he talks about grace and love and mercy and tells his, Christ, his followers to be light and darkness, he then begins telling them about persecution. Here's what you can expect. Even in John chapter 3, where he's talking to Nicodemus about the new birth and about spiritual blessings and these concepts that he couldn't even understand, he ends that discussion by talking about light and darkness and darkness hating the light. And that word, if you remember from last week, is a persecuting spirit to go out and actually destroy the light. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will face persecution. And so if we have a desire to be like Christ, the world will treat us like it treated Christ. He says that. If they're doing this to the master of the house, why would you not think they would do that to you? If it's not happening to us, or we don't think we deserve that, or it shouldn't happen to us, then the desire part of that verse is severely lacking in our life. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be an enemy of Satan, and he will do everything he can to stamp that light out. All who don't desire to live godly in Christ, we're just going to do our own thing, just leave us alone, then we're no threat to Satan, and we shouldn't worry about persecution. Based on that verse and some verses we looked at last week, persecution, like spiritual fruit, is almost a sign of whether or not you're following the Lord in abject obedience. If you are following him completely, if you are emulating him, if his light is shining through you, he says that darkness will hate you. 
if your light is muffled, if your light is not bright, but it's kind of gray or it's kind of dim, that you're not really messing with Satan's kingdom, you're no threat to the enemy at all, then the enemy will leave you alone because the last thing he wants you to do is change and be more like Christ. So it's coming. It's well overdue. And as we ended our message last week, what do we need to do to prepare for what is really our birthright as believers in Christ, as sojourners and ambassadors and not citizens of this kingdom. And I ended our last message by just quickly going over, just bullet point with some verses that we're going to, as I shared with you, we're going to expand more today and next week of what we need to do to prepare for persecution. Number one, fear God and not man. Expect persecution as a Christian and embrace it. It's going to come. It's not because you're a bad person. It actually means because you're emulating Christ when it comes. Despite persecution, as our heroes of old have done, have peace and rejoice because God is sovereign. God can do anything he wants to do. He can end it. He can let it endure. It's totally up to him. Be an example of Christ even during persecutions. I always find this um, so amusing. Um, when, when I was pastoring in LaGrange, Georgia, the music that the church liked, and before I got there, they had this little singing group, and they sang a lot of Southern gospel songs. And it seems like the thread through a lot of Southern gospel songs is when we all get to heaven. When we all get to heaven, it's going to be great. We cross that big you know, divide, it's going to be fantastic. And I'm praising the Lord with all the lost loved ones. I'm going to get to heaven. I can't wait till I get to heaven. We're going to leave this world behind. And then you go to the doctor and find out, guess what? What you've been praying about and singing about is going to happen in three weeks. And we fall apart. Oh, I can't believe this is happening. Oh, my life is over. Oh, it's, wait a second. We can sing songs about how glorious it is in heaven. And then when we find out we're heading there, for some reason we quake and there's a, there's a disconnect there. So even during persecutions, we're to emulate and be an example of Christ. Number five, we're to love our enemies. It's not them that we're to hate. It's a spirit behind them. Number six, we're to endure suffering and persecution with patience, just like it talks about in the book of Acts. We're to keep eternity in view. We're to remember even during persecution, Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail, we're to worship him no matter what. And we're going to be dealing with these over the next week or two. Number nine, hide God's word in our heart. We need to memorize that the day may come when you may not have 75 Bibles sitting in your house. Hence, we're beginning to start sharing our verses again and memorizing our verses. We need to learn how to fellowship with other Christians. We need to love one another. And finally, the whole faith prepper thing, we need to get serious about God. So what I want to do today is really simple. I want to only talk about two of these. The first one is to fear God and not man. And the second one is number seven, to keep eternity in view. Eternity in view. Keep the real thing the real thing. And so when I was studying this today, I was led to Psalm 56. Psalm 56 is a psalm that... Um, uh, was written that takes place while David was a prisoner in Gath. It uh, 
kind of parallel Psalm 34, which is written after he was delivered from Gath. And it kind of tells a, a story of David and his faith during a very dark time in his life. Now, I want you to listen very carefully. Um, I'm going to use an example of circles. The way this was first taught to me was by a man named Bill Gothard many, many years ago, and he talked about umbrellas. And here's how it works. Bill Gothard said that everybody has an umbrella of protection. In other words, I have my umbrella. It's raining outside. It's dark. There's, there's torrential storms coming, but I have this umbrella of God's authority. And as long as I stand under that umbrella, under the authority of God, I am absolutely protected. Once I move outside of that umbrella, once I decide that I'm going to go my own way, then, of course, I suffer the consequences of a terrible storm and, and all that kind of stuff. Talks about, Bill Gothard talked about a family. You have, the, you have God, and as long as the husband stays up under the authority of God, then there's protection there. The wife, of course, stays up under the authority of the husband, irrespective of how politically incorrect that is today. The children stay up under the authority of the family. And as long as they do, there's this protection. There are these circles that when we stay within the circle of God's authority that he has ordained for us, that we're safe and protected by him. Once we move outside that circle, go our own way, then we suffer the consequences of our rebellion and disobedience. If you have a... Um, using Bill Gothard's analogy, you have this umbrella situation, and all of a sudden the husband says, I'm not going to follow God anymore, I'm going to go my own way, then he's no longer under this protection that God has given him, and God will let him suffer the consequences until he finally, by chastising an errant son, bring him back into obedience. Same thing with a wife and kids and, and all of us. We, we all have authorities in our life. Another example like that is to talk about the circles that we have. I have a circle. God has given me a certain area in which he allows me to, to function. Outside of that, there are, you shouldn't do that. You do the thou shalt not. If I decide to move outside of what pleases God and do the things that I shouldn't do, then I experience the consequences of my sin, and therefore I suffer those consequences, a lack of fellowship with the Lord, maybe... Um, Certain things happen to me because of my sin, and the whole idea is for me to repent and God to bring me back in that circle. Make sense? Simple biblical truth that we've forgotten today. David moved beyond his circle. God had anointed him to be king, and Saul hated him. They just had this discussion with Jonathan, and then David ran. David didn't stay under the protection of God. David ran. He left, his, he left the people that were, were following him. He left his protectors, and, and he just he panicked, and he ran. And he ended up going to uh, uh, the priest at Nod, and he would go there, and he would say, you know, you got any food? Well, where's all the guys that are staying with you, David? I mean, where's your protection? I can't believe you're here alone. Oh, uh, well, uh, I told them to stay over there, lied, and I decided to come over here, and but well, you don't even have a weapon with you. Well, I didn't really want to bring a weapon, and so I kind of forgot it, but it's really okay. Another lie. Do you have a weapon here? Well, the only sword that we have, of course, is the sword that you took from Goliath. You remember the story? From Goliath, and so we'll give you that mighty sword. And, and all of a sudden, he was so fearful of Saul that he actually ran and took refuge with the Philistine king in Gath. Carrion, doesn't say that 
but implied with Scarion Goliath's sword. And they put him in jail. And hey, I can't believe he's come. And so you've got David in jail, and because he's in jail, instead of relying on the Lord, what he decided to do is, I'll just act like I'm crazy. So he starts, you know, salivating down his lips and on his uh, drooling on his shirt and acting like a crazy person. And the king goes, why'd you bring this crazy person to me? And they had him locked up in the jail. And if you think about that from David's perspective, he's in the jail and some of the jailers and the people that would go around and look in his cell were people who lost fathers and son in the great battle when David defeated Goliath. There was anger and there was animosity and now you're ours and now we've got you. And David found himself alone and desperate and afraid because he had moved outside of the circle of God's protection. He moved into a place that God never intended for him to be, but he went there because of fear. And I've got to handle this my own self. I'm not going to pray to you about that, Lord, anymore. What I'll do is I'll just act stupid. I'll act like, a, like I'm insane. I'll drool everywhere. And so hopefully they'll let me go because they'll realize I'm a crazy person. Where's God glorified in any of that? I'm going to run to the home of my enemy because I feel safer with my enemy than against my king who's coming against me because God, you can't change the king's heart. So I'm going to run to people who don't even share the values that I have, forgetting that bad company corrupts good character. Psalm 56 was written, tells about him being in Gath when the Philistines captured him. If you look at Psalm 56, a little notation at the very top that gives you an idea of where this is coming from. To the chief musician, set to the silent dove in a distant land, a mitchum, which basically means, the word literally means, do not destroy. In other words, David is writing this down. He puts a little note at the top to tell the scribes, don't destroy this. Don't throw this away. This is very important. When the Philistines captured him in Gath. Psalm 34, you can read that when you get home, is a psalm of praise and adulation that you will find happens when David is delivered from Gath. So as with many psalms, as with our life, as with our circumstances, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to be a Christian and things are getting increasingly hostile at work. They're making me do things that I can't do. I've got to go to these gender sensitivity classes where I can't call anybody or he or she. And if it hasn't happened to your work yet, it will. And now I have to call them by some other name. As a matter of fact, I made a mistake. I made a mistake at, you know, at lunch today and, and call someone who's a woman, a woman. And now they're upset with me. I got to go to HR. I may lose my job. And I mean, things are just crazy out there and weird things are happening. And I feel this oppression. I feel like I, I, I don't want to share my faith anymore. I don't want to I don't want to tell anybody I'm a Christian. I just want to kind of let them leave me alone and I'll leave them alone. And then we violate the very commands of Christ to take the light, the gospel message into all the world, no matter what. I have problems and I need solutions. David has a problem and he needs a solution. And so David begins by laying out his problem. Be merciful to me, O God. I'm in jail. And if you want to vision this from David's vantage point, I mean, he's in this cell and he can't get out. And he knows 
impending death is coming because he's walked into the hands of his enemies. And I can see these people walking back and forth of the cell saying, boy, as soon as the king lets you out of here, we're going to kill you and we're going to kill you slow. My dad died after you killed Goliath. And the fact is my, my son's no longer with us because of that. And I blame you. I have prayed to my false God for years that I would get this opportunity to, to take my rage and my vengeance upon you. And that day is now here. I don't know about you. I'd be a little frightened, wouldn't you? I mean, I don't mind dying. I just don't particularly want to die this way. Good Lord, be merciful to me. Merciful. Because nobody else is being merciful. Because man is not merciful. The word man here is pretty amazing. The word in the Hebrew means mortal man. It means a man of weakness. And is the only time I can find in Scripture where David was ever afraid of a man. Ever afraid of another human being. And here he is in Gath, stepped outside of the protective covering of God, forgot God's promises to him, the Jeremiah anointed one, you'll be king of Israel, forgot that God has a future for David because all he could see was the tormenting, fearful presence. Taking matters into his own hands, trying to act like a crazy person, maybe they'll let me go, shouldn't have been there in the first place. If you want to know the rest of the story, that priest that helped him out and 85 other priests were killed because they even helped David. I mean, he has the blood of that and the guilt of that on his hands. Be merciful to me, O God, for man, the men that are all around me would swallow me up. The word swallow here is the same word that's translated hound later on in this verse. And the word means to chase, to pursue, to thirst after blood, to pant eagerly. I just, I can't, I just, I just want to get to him. I just want to, I can't wait to get my hands on him. For man was swallowing me up, fighting all day, fighting relentlessly, never letting up. He oppresses me. My enemies would hound me, pursue me, pant just to get their hands on me relentlessly all day with no rest. And there are so many more of them who fight against me, O oh, Most High. Our nation is a classic example of calling what is evil good and good evil. Seems like laws are going to be passed as fast as they can to, to strip you of your sincerely held convictions as a believer in Christ. And your choice will be you hold on to those convictions, you will face persecution. You don't hold on to those convictions, and you won't. In Bonhoeffer's time in Nazi Germany, the, the, the Nazis came after the true church. And they erected, of course, the false church. And the false churches where all the Christians who didn't want to desire to live godly in Christ would go. And they would have the, the cross on this side, and they would have the Nazi flag on this side, and the, the pastors would have to submit their sermons to Goebbels and others, and they would get approved, or you can't say this, or you can say that. And people would come to church and have a form of godliness and have no power at all. So the church was existing in Nazi Germany, but it was anything other than the true church. The professing church versus the confessing church. But we're different. 
it'll never happen to us. Because in America, we're more spiritual. We're more loving. We just, we just love Jesus so much that God would never judge our nation, correct? That's my problem, God. Be merciful. What do I do? What's the solution? Verse 3. Whenever, today, yesterday, tomorrow, next week, whenever I am present tense afraid, whenever I'm fearful, whenever I can't see the end from where I'm at right now, whenever I'm lost in this swelling abyss of what-if fears, whenever that happens about any area of my life, I will. I'm making a commitment, a vow, a determination. I will trust, not in myself, not in the government, not in the church, not in my family, not in anything. I will trust in you. In only you. Now, this is the Hebrew word for trust. It's not the Greek word, pistis, which is often uh, translated faith or trust. In Hebrew, the word means something a little bit different. I love this. It means to be confident and secure without fear. But it expresses not only the cognitive, this is what I am, but the feeling of safety and security that I know I can rely on something else. I know I can rely on someone else. There is no fear at all. Yesterday, I'm, um, I'm thinking about this message. And uh, I had prepared the PowerPoint the night before, and I was just kind of ruminating it in my mind, and I was thinking about it, and, and Karen was... Uh, working in the, the field over here, and I was over there at the garden, and Maddie was here, and so Maddie wanted to run out and get some uh, flowers out there in the field. So she had this little bucket, and Karen, Karen, I couldn't see Karen. She was around the corner here cleaning up the backside of the church, and Maddie just started running out there in the field, and I'm watching her from over here, running out there in the field, and she would run, and I, she kept running, and where's she going? And she was going out there where those purple flowers are. Anyway, she's running, she's running out there, and and she gets out there and she stops. And before she bends down to pick him up, she turns around just to look at Nana. Let me make sure, oh, Nana's there. I'm safe. I'm okay. And she picked all the flowers. And I mean, it was great. Yesterday morning, I'm getting ready to go get Josiah to come help me out here. And I, when I got out, went out of the house, I saw Justice's car here. So I know that Justice had taken Lincoln or something. They were they were in the woods. And, and so as I, as I back the truck out, I'm heading down the driveway. Here comes Justice and Lincoln coming around the corner, coming down the driveway. And they're running and their face, their cheeks are red. And Justice is holding Lincoln's hand. And there's a big smile on their face. And it was like they, they went through the woods and they came out that way. And Lincoln said there was a car coming. So they ran down here and ran down the driveway. There was abject trust and excitement of a little boy holding his dad's hand. Just out there, I, you know, there's a million terrible things going on out there. and It's an evil world out there. and doesn't even understand, you know, the concept of injuries and stuff of that nature. And, but ju the dad was there. And the dad was holding his hand. And he was gladly holding his dad's hand. He wasn't pulling away and came up and I rolled my window down. And he was just, oh, we were out in the street. And out there, it was great. Having a good time with his little red cheeks because it was cold outside. And it was like, yeah, this is this kind of relationship we're to have with our Heavenly Father. 
I, you know, God, you may be sending me out somewhere, but let me just turn around. Oh, I still see you. You're still here. I'm safe. I'm safe. I'm still with you. I have that feeling knowing that I can rely on you or rely on your word or your promises or your truth. Because whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. I am a big fan of biographies written about Christians who lived in the Philadelphia church age. Uh, my heroes of the faith, you know, the Corrington Boone, or the, um, the D.L. Moody's and the Spurgeons, and, and even David Livingston. David Livingston goes out to the deepest, darkest Africa. And he's going out there and forsaken his birthright and forsaken the wonderful life he could have had in England. And he's out there with these absolute savages as they knew them back then, the cannibals and headhunters and stuff of that nature. And he's mapping the area out and he's, he's ministering to them the best he can. And all of a sudden the word came. This is from his journal on January 14th, 1856. The word came that this warring faction of cannibals were going to come and kill him and destroy everything he has done. And so the word came that that was coming his way. And what you need to do, David Livingston, is flee. That's the logical, rational thing to do. You can forget your map making. You, forget, you can forget plotting the land out. You can forget what God has called you to do because the danger is so great. You need to flee and you need to flee now, which is a prudent thing to do. Here's what David Livingston wrote. <clears throat> Again, this is a century and a half ago verbiage. But this is what he wrote in his journal on that day. Felt much turmoil in spirit in prospect of having all my plans for the welfare of this great region and this teeming population knocked on the head by savages tomorrow. The savages are coming. They're going to destroy everything. We have to flee. But I read that Jesus said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, including this nation. And lo, I am uh, with you always, even unto the end of the world. I will not cross, the word means secretly, tonight as I intended. I will not. Should a man, sh should such a man as I flee? Nay, verily. I shall take observation for latitude and longitude tonight as though they mean last. I will continue the call God has told me to do even if I die. I feel quite calm now, thank God. Now, his physical situation had not changed. He did not get some shortwave message that says the savages have decided to go east instead of west. The, situ the doctor didn't come back and say, oh, the tumor's gone. The, the, the airing relationship didn't call you up and say, it's my fault. Please, let's get back together. None of that has changed. None of that has changed. The threat for him was just as dangerous after he came to this mental understanding and trust in God's word and vanquished fear than it was before. But the difference was he believed in Jesus's promises of who he is rather than what's creeping at him in the middle of the night. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. Whenever I will trust in you. It's not enough just to verbalize the words. 
It's not enough to just have faith. Faith must be put into practice. Faith must be exercised. In other words, David Livingston, yeah, I believe, God, you can do anything, but I'm leaving. I'm leaving at the 8 o'clock train because I'm scared. Well, that's, that's not faith. That's just words that mean nothing. Faith says, if you said this, Jesus, then this is what I'm going to do. And if you understand the sovereignty of God, well, if you stay, you should die. Well, if I understand the sovereignty of God, I was going to die anyway on this day if I do die. So what is their fear in that? And plus, if I do die, where do I go? I spend bliss in heaven rather than getting older and older and older and full of heartache and physical, terrible things that happen when you get older. Why would I want to spend another minute away from the Lord? Which brings us to point number seven of those 12 points about how to prepare for persecution. And that's to keep eternity in view. This is the most important thing I want to share with you today. And this is a third of the way through my message. You may not get done. I've been reading a lot recently about great spiritual leaders, um, Bunyan, uh, Amy Carmichael, um, the great Keswick teachers, stuff of that nature that uh, Oswald Chambers, um, Andrew Murray, who had this change in their life where they were able to appropriate the Holy Spirit into every avenue of their life. So he not only was part of their spirit, and we'll talk about this at some point in time, but also had control of their soul, which is who we are, our mind, will, emotions, how we feel and how we don't feel and stuff of that nature. And, And one of the truths that they always talk about is the fact that we have a tendency of only viewing life in what we can see and hear and feel and touch. But life is more than that. As a matter of fact, the true reality that lasts forever is different than this temporal reality that we hold on to so tight, which is someday going to cease to be. The world will be destroyed, time will end, and Jesus will usher in his his reign and and the new heaven and the new earth. Someday you and I will cease to exist and they'll come to our funeral and there'll be the body there. And people always walk by and they look at the body and say, oh, it looks like he's sleeping. So I look like a corpse when I'm sleeping. You know, I mean, we do that, but we look at the body of a loved one, you know, say for like when my mom passed away, it's a closed casket, but they opened it up so that the family could go look. And there's the body. And let's assume it looks exactly like you remember her to be, but something's missing. Time ended. There's something not here anymore. There's there's this temporal reality, this reality of houses and cars and and bridge games and, and gardens and vacations and problems that we have all is gone. And we're ushered into this true reality, this reality that, that lasts forever. This reality in which we exist with him and him alone. And Jesus talked about this abundant life in Christ, this overwhelming life in Christ, this life with Christ that was so incredible that when you experience it, it becomes so kinetic, it becomes so contagious that other people will look at you and say, I want what you have. I'm suffering the same problems that you are. As a matter of fact, your problems are worse than mine. The same calamities that are befalling me are befalling you, and yet you soar spiritually. You're in the middle of a prison, 
unjustly accused, flogged at midnight, singing praise songs to the Lord, thanking him for what just happened to you. I want that. That's the abundant life in Christ. And that is reserved for those people like you and I who exist in this world, but live in that world. We live in the world of the true reality. This is not the true reality. This is where we're governed by physical laws that will all be gone when the physical world ceases to exist. We're governed by certain mores in our culture that will no longer be important to us once our culture is now gone. Yet we spend all our time trying to make money and trying to make ourselves successful or make our life easier in this world and forget that it's passing away. And what truly exists is living by faith physically now, but living by the promises that belong to the world that never ends. And once we realize that, fear vanquishes. Fear is gone because we have in us and we have bold access to God himself that can do anything he wants to do at any time at all. There's a story, 2 Kings, about a prophet named Elisha. King of Syria found out that Elisha was uh, basically thwarting his ability to go and overtake Israel at that time. And so he decided, I'm going to take this king out. And so he got all his armies together and he went and he surrounded the city of where this prophet was, this prophet of Elijah. And when the servant of the prophet went out and he saw all the armies there, just chariots and everything there, he was noticeably frightened. Here's the account. Therefore he, the king of Syria, sent horses and chariots and a great army there, thousands upon thousands of troops surrounding your house in Gastonia. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God, the servant of Elisha, arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And the servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? It's over. It's curtains. We're done. We're finished. There's no way we can escape this big army. Yeah, if you only lived in this world, if you only worried about these things, and if you forgot the promises that God has made to each and every one of us, the promises that he made to Elijah. And so what Elijah, what Elisha didn't do was, you know, command at that particular point in time that all of them will become blind, although he did that later on. Instead, he said this, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, I don't want to be, um, I don't want to make fun of this statement, and I don't want to in, in you know, say anything bad about this servant. But if Elisha told that to me, I would have done this. What? There's me and there's you and there's all of them. I mean, you, you need to go back to bed, take a nap. I mean, feeling kind of strange. I mean, what are you talking about here? I mean, that that's good for preaching. Greater is he that lives us and he that's in the world. That's a great message. That's an ain't for preaching. This is for living. 
Preaching is great. We're all sitting in church and telling us stuff, and we really agree with us, and we go out, and that's great. But right now, we have to put this in the faith. Right now, put it into practice. Right now, we're surrounded, and we're going to be killed. And you say, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So in this particular situation, Elisha did not say, just have faith. Instead, he said this, Lord, um, open this man's eyes so he can see the real reality where I live. Then Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may truly see what life is like for one who loves God. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountains was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. But you're not alone. There's no need to fear because the only thing the enemy can do to us is kill us. But the fact is we are empowered by a mighty God who lives in us and desires to show himself strong in this lost and decaying world. There was another account a couple chapters later. Hezekiah is the king. All of a sudden, the king of Assyria comes, and the king of Assyria says, you're done. I've surrounded your city. I've got 185,000 troops with me, and I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to kill your family, and I'm going to kill your daughters, and I'm going to plunder the house of God. I'm going to do everything. There's nothing you can do, and the, the city is is quaking, the city is fearful, because this massive army is coming, spelling destruction. Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O God, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all kingdoms of the earth, including this one that's surrounding us. You have made heaven and earth, so incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Shennacherib, this Assyrian king, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the king of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their land. No one can stand before this guy, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, said, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me against the king of Assyria, I have heard. And for the next 14 verses, we've got what? is said to the king of Assyria. And at the end of that, this is what happens. And it came to pass on a certain night that an angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people arose early in the morning, there were corpses, all dead. So the king of Assyria departed and went away, returned home and remained in Nineveh and was later killed by his two sons. The fact is, God can do anything he wants if we understand the reality of his kingdom transcends anything we're suffering with now. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. And who are you? 
In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear, because what can flesh do to me? What can man do to me? David is in prison in Gath, faking his mental illness, expecting to be killed in a horrific prolonged way. And his feeling was understanding who God is. What can these guys do to me? Nothing. Now watch the change in tense here. I love this. Whenever I am afraid, present tense, I will. Whenever that happens, I will. That's my commitment for the future. Trust in you. I will praise your word. I have in the past. I placed my faith in you, and I will not fear because of the faith I placed in you in the past. Conclusion, what can flesh do to me? If I want to learn how to fear God and not fear man, if I want to learn how to keep eternity in view, what can flesh do to me? Now listen very carefully. When fear is brought into the presence of God, when fear is placed in subject to the power and the presence of God, it literally dissolves in front of our eyes just like it did with David. He was there. He was mighty. He was great. Wait a second. That's just fear. I serve a mighty God who is greater than any fear I can conjure up in my mind. When fear is then subject to the power of God and the sovereignty of God, just like with David, it just disappears. Makes us bold and strong as lions. And when it doesn't, when that doesn't happen, then I've experienced both. It doesn't mean that my fear is too great. It doesn't mean that it's so large and so intimidating and so overwhelming that it actually beats back God, that God goes, well, I would help you out, Steve, but that's a pretty big enemy, so I'm going to pass on this one. It doesn't mean my fear is so great. It means my God is so small. Most of our spiritual problems, especially as we face persecution or tough times, is the fact that not are the persecution and the tough times so great, but our God is so small. And most of our problems are not the fact that our problems are so big, but our God is so small. I just, I, I just can't do it. I, I know I made a commitment to do this, but these other voices are really loud over here and I have to satisfy them. No, no, it's all God. We surrender all to him. We give all to him and he will take care of everything else. I mean, what can flesh do to me? What can man do to me? Who in the world should I fear? Last week, we looked at Matthew chapter 10, uh, verses 16 to 31, and we talked about all the persecution that takes place after he sent, tells them to go out and do all these wonderful things, raise the dead, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers. However, for the next 21 verses, he talks about the fact how, how you're going to be persecuted because of that. And then we get to Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. And that's the one I want to share with you now. This is kind of a parallel passage to that. And look what Jesus says. And I say to you, my friends, my friends, you can almost feel the compassion as he's sharing this. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those people out there. Do not be afraid of the government. Do not be afraid of your enemies. Do not be afraid of illnesses or the coronavirus or our economic collapse. Do not be afraid of, of people that will turn you in or say bad things about you. Do not be afraid of 
of losing your job. Don't be afraid of anything. Because the worst thing that can happen to us is someone would kill us. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body. And their power is limited to only that. If they kill the body and after that, there's nothing more they can do to you, you laugh in their face. That's it. All you can do is kill me and and what? Usher me into the presence of God? Please. But we don't feel that way because we want to hold on to this life so much because it's so wonderful, because our God is so small, because we don't have a view of eternity. We don't realize that we're here for a purpose. And as soon as God lets us go, the better, because we can go spend time with him. Do not be afraid of those who can only kill the body and have limited power. And after that, there's nothing more they can do. But let me tell you, he says, whom you should fear. You want to fear somebody? It's in your nature as humans to be afraid of something. Let me tell you, you should fear fear him who after he's killed the body has the power, unlimited power to cast you into hell. Yeah, you want to fear someone, fear him, fear God, not man, fear God. Well, are are you saying that, that we should have that kind of relationship with God? Are you saying that we should fear him? No, no, aren't five sparrows sold for two copper coins? bunch of crickets when you go on fishing, they mean nothing. And not one of those things that mean nothing to you is forgotten or forsaken by God. But the very hair on your head is numbered. Therefore, don't fear, for you have more value than many sparrows. Many sparrows. What can flesh do to me? We will not develop this here, but if you would like, between now and next week, I suggest you read Acts 3 through 5, for there's nothing more than one persecution after another persecution after another persecution to the early church. And they didn't quit preaching the gospel. Even when they were beaten, they praised the Lord that they were found worthy to suffer like their Christ. And the world was turned upside down by these men. This is Facebook, for those of you who are still on it. This is your friends and your neighbors. This is uh, the woke generation. This is the cancel culture. This is what is happening to everybody out there that disagrees with the way the culture is going right now. Same thing was happening to David. All day, relentlessly, they twist my words. They, they say I'm saying what I'm saying, but I'm not saying that. They're, they're twisting it around because they have some sort of, ag- of agenda. As a matter of fact, day and night, they constantly thinking thoughts against me for evil. I mean, they're just trying to devise ways to destroy me. Matter of fact, they come together in groups and all they do is defame my name. They hide. They mark my steps. They watch where I'm going. They lie in wait for my life. They're they're out to design to just destroy me and kill me. But I don't care. Because what can flesh do to me? What can they do to me? I belong to a mighty God. I belong to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And God, you see these things. And they, they may, I may not worry about what flesh can do to me, but they think they can do something to you. And they can't, God, because you are all in all. Question, God, are they going to escape what they're doing by their iniquity? Is, is there never going to be a day where the evil are brought into 
account for what they've done? Have you ever thought that? When is the day coming when the bad guys pay for what they've done and the good guys are vindicated? May not happen in this world that belongs to Satan, but that day is coming. Shall they escape by iniquity, God? No. In anger, cast down these people, O God, because that day of judgment is coming. I'm going to show you these two verses with an implied therefore. I love this. Lord, I'm going through a tough time right now. I mean, things are kind of bad. But I know that you number my wonderings. Literally means you remember my numberings. And not only that, but the tears that I've cried for the injustices and the pain that other people have suffered. I, my family, and others have suffered. You hold those in your bottle. You keep those in your bottle. You write those in your book so that you'll always remember and always know what your loved ones have gone through for you. Knowing that I'm loved this much, knowing that I'm cared about this much, knowing that you remember my wanderings, that you put my tears in your bottle, that you write my sufferings in your book, it bolsters my courage. Therefore, when I cry out to you, then my enemies will be turned back. Then is a time word. When is a time word. When I do something, then something happens. When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. Really? Really? Do you really believe that? Is that just for preaching or is that just for living? No, it's, it's really for living. How do you know that, David? You're trapped in a prison in Gath. They're going to kill you, David. How in the world do you know that? Well, I know this. I know this because God is not with me, but God is for me. God is on my side. God is my ally. God is my comfort. God is my paraclete. God is the one that comes along beside me. God is my defender. God is my advocate. God is for me. For me. This I know because God is for me. So therefore, I'm going to put my faith in action. In God, I will. I will praise your word no matter what the circumstances. In the Lord, I will praise his word no matter what the circumstances. In God, I have put my trust it is there. Come what may, I don't matter what happens. I will not be afraid because now what can man do to me? What can man do to me? I know that God is for me. And since I know that God is for me because I'm conformed to the image of him, that his Holy Spirit lives within me, that I walk and breathe him, then what can man do to me? What, what can this world do to me? Why should I ever fear? We find the same thought in Romans chapter 8. God is for us. Who can be against us? Well, a lot of people can be against us. Yeah, but it don't matter because God is for us. I have a strong defender. I'm not supposed to defend myself. I let him do the defending. What can man do to me? And then it closes up, and I won't, um, I won't spend any time on this for time. This says, vows made to you are binding upon me. I, I know God, knowing how good you are and gracious that you are, as I made certain promises to you. I made promises to follow your word. I made promises to live according to your precepts. And I'm not forgetting those, God. I'm going to do those. I'll render praises to you because you've delivered my soul from death. You have not kept my feet, or you have, have you not kept my feet from falling? Then I may 
walk before you in the light of the living. You have kept me and sustained me for no other reason than I can walk before you as an example of your grace in the light of the living. So the questions that I'm going to pose to you at the end are the same questions the Lord asked me about my own life. Steve, are you walking so that other people can see your faith? Or are you worried and fearful and fretful? Oh my gosh, I can't believe this is going to happen. I don't want to tell anybody about Jesus because I'm going to lose my job or lose this or all that kind of stuff. I mean, are, do people know that you belong to me because you're walking in the light of the living, showing faith in action? Are you the same guy that you were two years ago, you know, in the private versus who you claim to be in public? If we walk in faith among others in the light of the living, it's an expression of our faith. It's the exercising of our faith. And doing so, listen carefully, makes us invincible to fear. Invincible to fear. Well, I'm, I'm so afraid. I've got a business and my business is going really good and I've, I've built my standard of living up to maintain my income. Well, that was probably a mistake, but that's another issue for another day. Uh, that's infringing on the future. But I, I've done that because that's what everybody does. Bought a bigger house, bigger car, bigger this, bigger that. Okay, because it's always going to stay that way. And I'm so afraid that I'm going to lose my income because if I lose my income, I have a smaller house and a smaller car and, and only be able to go to Taco Bell and not Ruth Chris. But the fact is, what a terrible, what a terrible way to live your life. Terrible way to worry about stuff like that. Christ talks about the fact that, that he will meet all of our needs, that there's nothing to worry about that. If we become invincible by fear, by living our faith out in him. But that really only happens, only happens if we have abundant faith in him. Now listen, um, I'm sorry if you don't like the messages. I have to uh, share with you what the Lord wants me to do because I'm ultimately accountable to him. But difficult times are coming. Uh, they are. I have um, I've done what I could, can, still doing what I can to try to mitigate that for people who uh, are just blindly moving ahead, which is, which is okay. But the fact is, knowing difficult times are coming, my faith is stronger now than it's ever been. Because, if it's, you know, yes, Lord. And I always prayed that God would do some mighty work in the church before I died. I'm 66 as of today. Um, and I haven't seen it. I've seen smatterings of it. I've seen little bits of it. But I haven't seen a whole congregation of tens. I haven't seen half a congregation of tens. You know, I've seen a sporadic kind of it. I haven't been a ten as much as I should have. But the fact is, Persecution has a tendency of burning off the things that don't matter. And maybe God is answering that prayer. Maybe God, through persecution and tough times, is going to turn it around so that you and I will truly know who believers in Christ are because we'll have these shared sufferings and this shared faith and this lack of fear knowing that God is sovereign in all things. It's what we've been talking about for months, almost a year, about being a faith prepper preparing our faith for whatever is going to happen because it's coming our way. It's here, but it's going to intensify because that's what the Lord promised. And I don't know about you, but spiritually, I'm excited about it. 
Man, I'm excited about it because who knows what God's going to do before he finally ushers in his kingdom. Amen? Do not fear at all. Because when you, when you fear God more than man, all man can do is kill you. And then he ushers you into the presence of the Lord. And the older I get, the more appealing that becomes. And always keep eternity in view. This is all passing away. The houses, the cars, the nation, the country, the culture, the world is all passing away. But if our reality, if we exist in his kingdom, in his world, and store up, as Jesus says, treasures in that kingdom where they're not destroyed in this, we will be the most blessed of all people. Amen? Let me pray.